So this morning, um, like I have said the last few weeks, we went slightly uh, out of chronological order. Today we're still in Mark 3. We're going to be finishing Mark 3. This week is the unforgivable sin. I switched that to this week because I thought maybe that would be a little, uh, a little hard to push on Christmas. Seemed like the family of God preached a little easier the Sunday before Christmas. But even that, as I was prepping this week, I, I, I realized yet again, it's, I mean, the way that the Lord works, I could have preached this just as well on Christmas as any, any day of the year. So um, that's because that's how the Word of God works. So the unforgivable sin. You know, there's an easy answer to the unforgivable sin and a very complicated one. So just so that everyone is on the same page with me, if you, this is the easy answer, okay? If you ever fear having committed the unforgivable sin, you have not committed the unforgivable sin. So just as your own, in your own mind, because this is something that gives this set of verses here, gives people a lot of trouble. And if you are ever afraid of having committed the unforgivable sin, it's a guarantee that you have not. Because someone who has committed the unforgivable sin doesn't care. Right? And so if you have a tender conscience about it, you're safe. Okay? That's the easy answer. So if you go, go away. If you get lost later in everything I'm going to say, just remember that. Even after everything I say, you're still a little afraid. Just think, oh, I'm afraid, so I'm good. <laughs> so I'll be preaching through Mark chapter 3, verses 20 through 30. Let me read those for you now. Actually, verse 22 through 30. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebub. And by the prince of demons, he casts out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness and is guilty of, a, of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you, Lord God, that at times it is... Um, extraordinarily difficult to understand. I thank you for sending your spirit to give us clarity, uh, that we would read the word of God uh, by his light, that we would see Christ more clearly in it, that we would see our relationship to you more clearly in it. I thank you for your word. I thank you for this morning. I pray, Lord, as, as each of us are listening to this, that uh, as each of us needs comfort and conviction, that you would supply sufficiently both to all of us. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if you want to know about the strong man section, I, I preached that two weeks ago. If you want to know about what's going on with this family ahead of these verses and after these verses, that was last week. This week, we're going to explain what's going on here with the scribes and exactly what this extraordinarily dark saying is that, that Jesus makes at the end of this. Uh, an, an eternal sin, an unforgivable sin. What is that unforgivable sin? The arrival of a delegation of legal specialists from Jerusalem suggests that the Galilean mission of Jesus has attracted the critical attention of the Sanhedrin. The scribes know that Jesus has a considerable falling and that he possesses the power to expel demons. That's without a doubt. They do not come from Jerusalem 
to check him out, thinking that he is a fraud. They know what he's doing, and they know the effect that it's having on the community. That That's not in dispute. They do not argue that he doesn't have the power to do the things he's doing. They want to explain how he has the power to do the things that he is doing. So he's been going around Galilee causing trouble amongst the the leaders there, but now it's gotten to be such a big deal that the official poobahs down in Jerusalem have sent out a delegation, right? It's like now they're having congressional hearings. <laughs> it's never good when Congress wants to have hearings. And, and it's never good when the Sanhedrin sends out a group of scribes to check out what you're doing. The scribes are, in fact, the default opponents of Jesus throughout the entire Gospel of Mark. Okay? They are the joker to his Batman, and they're just as silly, frankly. They're coming from Jerusalem in this instance, the seat of the temple authority, plus their frequent mention with the chief priests signifies official opposition arrayed against Jesus. Okay, this is, these are not just some local teachers. These are the people who are in charge of the nation of, Jeru- of Israel. The people who are in charge, the leaders, are now paying attention to what Jesus is doing and, and what it means for them. Okay? It's gone, like, I, like I've said uh, a couple weeks ago. If, if the local authorities are looking for you, it's pretty easy to hide. Once the federal government gets involved, it's pretty difficult. Okay? You can hide from a Seattle detective pretty easily. But when the FBI is looking for you, it gets a lot more difficult. And, and in this instance, this is what we have now. The fuzz has come down to check them out. The G-men, as they used to say. And at this point... Their opposition is bolder and more confrontational than anything that we've seen. Note that they are spreading rumors. Okay? Note that what it says here. It says, and the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying. And then Jesus has to call them to come before him. So it's not like they've gone into a meeting where he's at and they're making accusations to him. They're going around spreading accusations about him. So how official does that look? Right? Are these guys going after the truth? Are they going after it by the, the law of God? Or are they, just, right? are they just spreading rumors? They don't seem very professional in their conduct at this point. They are not accusing Jesus to his face. They are speaking lies about him. And to respond, Jesus has to summon them before him. No longer do they pose insinuating questions, such as, why does this fellow talk like that? In chapter 2, verse 7. They have formed a lethal judgment. They have made up their minds about him. Jesus is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. That's that's a statement of fact. They're not there to investigate. They're there to try to, right, (laughs) get this whole situation under control. They've lost the crowd. Lots of people are following Jesus. He goes around and does whatever he wants in the face of scribes and Pharisees and synagogue leaders. And what they are here to do is to mop up, to clean it up. They're here to fix the problem. They're fixers. And their way of fixing it isn't finding out what's really going on, but to simply spread rumors about him to try to kill the size of the crowds that are following him around. The precise nature of their opposition is important to note. They do not deny that Jesus has power to perform miracles, nor do they accuse him of being an imposter. They indeed recognize his power to perform them, but they impugn the source of his power. That's what they're talking about. Not whether he can do it, but how he can do it. They are official emissaries from the great Sanhedrin who are examining Jesus' miracles to determine whether Capernaum should be declared a seduced city. This is something they would do. Um, They would send officials to find out if perhaps some new 
local deity has set up shop, and now what Israel has done is they've lost the whole area. Right? Because think, that when God sent them into the land, they, he, he told them, be careful of the gods and the people that were here before you. And over time, eventually what happens is those old deities all come back in some form. And so they're there to not only just see if some person is possessed by a demon, but if the whole land now, as I said during the Sermon on Angels, has been turned over to a new god. Is there a new demon now just in charge of this whole area? Do we have to write it off? Who's innocent? Who's not? Who's in it? Who's not? That's what they're there to do. It's not just even about him anymore. They've made up their mind about him. They're trying to find out how big the problem really is. Now, this is a, a weird way uh, of doing things. When we send mission, missionaries overseas, this isn't the kind of thing that we have them doing. <laughs> Go find out if the whole place is, is under the power of some demon. Um, and, and, I mean, this, isn't, this is very odd for us. I think culturally for them, it was, it was just what they did. If you go back and you look at their extra-biblical writings, this is something that they would commonly do. They would go and declare, oh, some city now we've taken from a demon, some city is now we've lost to a demon. Such a declaration required a thorough investigation made on the spot by official envoys in order to determine the extent of the defecation and to distinguish between the instigators, the apostates, and the innocent. Now, the scribes make two charges against Jesus. Related accusations. He is demon-possessed, and he casts out demons through collusion with the prince of the demons. The first accusation is repeated in the concluding statement. They were saying he was possessed by an unclean spirit. Now, there's a great deal of petulance in the scribes' accusations. Relatives and close friends might misunderstand Jesus. Even his followers might be extremely puzzled by him. But it, it was left to the theological commission of inquiry to misinterpret him deliberately. Right? His family just thinks he's gone mad. Right? He thinks he's a teapot now. Right? So that when it's that kind of thing, a family just tries to hide it. Right? shush it up, and like, that's why they come to try to take him away. Jesus thinks he's a teapot. He's crazy now. These guys are actually accusing him of being possessed and under the power of and in collusion with demons. Now, madness, many thought, was because of demons. So the, the, the two accusations are actually quite similar, but one is, is gracious almost and compassionate, and the other accusation is not. He's lost his mind doesn't sound quite as bad as <laughs> he's in collusion with the Beelzebub. Those are very different kinds of statements. The theological commission was less concerned with speaking the truth than with speaking cutting words. They're trying to insult him. They're trying to make him look bad in front of as many people as they can. Now, for a moment, different um, manuscripts have different names. Sometimes it's Beelzebub. Sometimes it's Beelzebul. Now, I'm not exactly sure why. So, now, the, the, because either name or the name, specific name of actual demons. They used to believe the, right? They were not like us. They knew the names of the demons that were setting up shop as demigods, as false gods in that region. What's funny is Beelzebul is actually called the Lord of Dung. He's the Lord of the dead. And Beelzebub is the prince of demons, the chief demon, the one in charge of all of the demons. So, Later on, it was discovered that really both demons are the same demon. So that's why the manuscripts have these two different names. Rather, it's the Lord of Dung, the Lord of Flies, or the Prince of, Prince of Demons. Either way, it's not good. Jesus knows exactly who they're accusing him of being in collusion with because he uses the name Satan. 
He gets who's behind both. Remember, this was in the angel sermon. Who's behind all of these false deities and all these fallen demons? It's Satan. That's who he's really fighting. By their accusations, the scribes brand Jesus' work as unlawful and consign him to the category of a magician. That's really what they're saying about him. He's a sorcerer. He's a spirit medium. Right? What, what happens now is he is in work with things that we cannot see, demons. He's, he now is the one that wor- is the go-between between people and these evil spirits. They're calling him a sorcerer. They're calling him a magician. The related charge of sorcery became widespread and is attested both in the Talmud and early patristic literature. This is something that people really believed happened. Right? Later on in Acts, they deal with a sorcerer, someone who has power, who's doing all kinds of things um, to, to get power and is trying to pay the apostles later on to get the Holy Spirit because he wants that power too. So sorcerers are, are a thing at this point. We, we think they're just little funny boys with scars on their heads who have really long movies made about them. But back then, a sorcerer was an actual thing, something you had to worry about. And so they're coming to say that Jesus is a sorcerer. He's a sorcerer. They are literally on a witch hunt. Right? We use that phrase figuratively, but they're literally hunting witches. Hunting witches. Jesus' answer to the charges with his own charge. He, he, all he does is countercharge. So as he countercharges, he, he, he both, um, what he does is he shows how foolish their charges are against him. He disproves them with just some simple logic and at the same time accuses them of, of something that's equally worthy of the death penalty. They're ca- accusing him of being a sorcerer, which is he, you get the death penalty for that. He's accusing them of committing an unpardonable sin. So this is what the, I love, Mark, is it's all power struggles. So you have these guys, the scribes, accusing him of something that's deserving death, and you got Jesus accusing them of something conserving death. Who's going to win? <laughs> right? Who's going to win? And, and I love this, because the people who are hunkered down in catacombs who were first reading the Gospel of Mark would have been thrilled by this. Ah, we know who wins. Right? And now there's accusations against us, and we have accusations against right, those people who are accusing us, and I wonder who's going to win in the end. Well... Here's your example. Jesus addresses himself to the charge of collusion with Beelzebul through pithy proverbial sayings. For the first time, parables now have come into the Gospel of Mark. And I'm not going to explain about parables now. That's going to be for when I get back. The first sermon I'll do is on parables. Just what are they? Because generally when you think of a parable, don't you think of a story? Well, here it says he, he answers them with parables, but it's just a couple of short pithy sentences. So I, we'll have to get into what a parable is because it's, it's a bigger idea than its length, essentially. But we're going to set that aside for a moment. He substitutes the word Satan for Beelzebul, bringing the controversy within the perspective of his actual mission as a direct confrontation with Satan. That's what he's come to do. He's the strong man, and he's not here to fool around with some scribes. He's here to take out the head honcho to bind the strong man so that he can plunder his house. And, and so forget this name and that name, this demon, that demon, this God, that God, whatever. I'm here to take on Satan. That's who's really behind all of this. That's who's behind all of this. His argument is commun- commun- accumulative. That's a word I need to work on. Accumulative in its force. 
This is what he says. If what you say is true, there exists the impossible circumstance that Satan is destroying his own realm. Who does that? For it is self-evident that a kingdom divided against itself will always fall. A household divided against itself cannot be established. If their accusation is factual, then Satan has become divided in his allegiance to himself. This should mean that he has become powerless. Yet this is clearly not the case. Right? Everywhere Jesus goes, he's, con- he's confronted by, and even this, an attack by Satan. Satan clearly isn't against himself. Satan is not in any way diminished yet. Even though he is bound, he's still active. He's still powerful, demonstrated by the fact that these scribes are coming to accuse Jesus of, uh, of wickedness. Right? The fight is still going, and it's still going strong. We're in the third round here, right? and Jesus keeps winning, but that's fine. He'll keep fighting. But it's just illogical what they're saying. No, nobody attacks themselves. Nobody does that. I mean, what? Right? Imagine Eisenhower to defeat the Nazis bombs Washington D.C. Right? There's just madness. Nobody does that. The heart of Jesus' mission is to confront Satan and to crush him on all fields. And in the fulfillment of his task, he is conscious of being the agent of overwhelming power. Right? He goes out in the wilderness and he whoops them there. He goes in the synagogue, there's a demon-possessed man, he whoops Satan there. He sits down, turns out the scribes who are of his house, Satan's household are out running around trying to get, right, plan on killing him, and he's whooping them there as well. Satan has nothing on Jesus. Jesus is winning in every front. Now, what's interesting here is, what is the household that's divided? Here you have members of the Sanhedrin, the leaders of Israel, accusing their rightful king of evil wickedness. So you have Israel fighting Israel. So which household is it that's divided that's going to fall? It's not Jesus's. Satan's is going to fall, but it's because Jesus is going to overtake it. The household that's, that is actually in the most danger right now is the household of Israel itself. It's the kingdom that's divided against itself. In verse 28... We are given the first instance in which Jesus says something that he's well known for. He says, truly I say unto you. This is something that only he says. The word would be better translated as amen. So instead of truly, he says, amen, I say to you. Now, we usually say amen after a statement or a prayer, right? Somebody comes up here, we pray, we all say amen to, to affirm what it is that has been said. We sing a song and we say amen to affirm what has been sung. We read the word of God and we say amen at the end to affirm what's been read. Right? So it's like, it's like a preacher saying, testify, everybody. Right? And everyone, amen. Preach it, brother. Right? That, that's usually how we use the word. <laughs> but Jesus is an authority unto himself. He doesn't need anybody else to say amen when he's done. He says amen before he even starts talking. <laughs> now, now, if you ever hear a preacher or a teacher saying amen before they're talking, they, they're, they have a problem with their own authority. Right? We all, the rest of us, wait for someone else to say amen. Jesus is the only one in the Bible who gets to do this. Because he, right? he doesn't need anyone else to testify about himself, he says. He testifies about himself. My wife pointed out that <laughs> the amen might actually be from him getting the word from the, the, his father in heaven saying amen and then saying it to the rest of us, which would be, that would be, make sense. Because he does everything that the Father wants him to do. His food and drink is the will of God. So, 
one commentator on Luke pointed out that everything we know about the Trinity comes from overhearing the conversation between Jesus and the Father. And I think even in this, it's true. Who is he saying amen to? It's both. He's saying it to the Father as he receives the word, and he's saying it of his own to testify to his own words. Now, he is making a point by saying amen. Because what he about, is about to say isn't just part of his usual teaching. He doesn't always start with amen before he begins speaking. But he's about to say something, and he really, really wants them to understand it. He really wants them to remember it. So he's adding a ton of emphasis right here before he even, in verse 28, begins to speak. And what does he say? As the true witness of the living God, what does he say? He affirms that all and every sin, any sin, will be forgiven men. All of them. With one fearful exception. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit forever removes a man beyond the sphere where forgiveness is possible. Blaspheming the Holy Spirit, calling the clean spirit an unclean spirit, removes you from the possibility of forgiveness. Well, that is rightfully, that is terrifying. That is a terrifying idea. Because I was not, right? So then it gets into all kinds of categorical questions. I was an unbeliever and cursed the Holy Spirit, rejected the Holy Spirit, for 23 years before I became a believer. So did I commit the unforgivable sin? Well, clearly not, because I was forgiven and brought into the kingdom of God. So we have to be very, very careful from here on out. We're going to tread very lightly, because there's, there's two things going on here. One is that Jesus is saying this warning specifically, historically, to a group of people. Okay? Primar- primarily, that is who this warning is to. There's a broader principle to be applied to the rest of us, which we'll get to. But we have to remember, this is Jesus in in the flesh, speaking to men in the flesh. And he's not making a judgment on them like he's made a judgment, right? He is far more gracious than they are. They've made a final judgment about what the source of Jesus' power. He's not making a final judgment. He's warning them. And he really wants them to listen. He really wants them to listen. Blasphemy is an expression of defiant hostility toward God. The scribes were thoroughly familiar with this concept. (laughs) They were the masters of blasphemy. It's later what they actually execute Jesus for. They know all about blasphemy. But who's committing it here? Who is supposed to be the safeguard of the honor and dignity and the law of God? But but they're actually committing blasphemy by even this whole interaction with Jesus. In their world, it was called the profanation of the name. The profanation of the name, which generally denoted speech defying God's power and majesty. The scribal tradition considered blasphemy no less seriously than Jesus did. It's a death penalty in both of their minds. There are certain things, as wicked as we all are, that we just don't do. That we just don't do. A quote from the written tradition at the time says this, The Holy One, blessed be he, pardons everything else. But on profanation of the name, i.e. blasphemy, he takes vengeance immediately. Now that's not in the Bible. That's in their tradition. Now just to show you what the scribes think they know themselves and they don't. Because that statement that I just read is true. That's actually true. Now here's an example. Here's an example from Scripture. 
This is how seriously God himself takes blasphemy. Before we begin to understand this, we have to actually understand how seriously God himself takes this sin. I go to Acts now, chapter 5, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 6. And listen to this. How seriously does God take blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not yours to dispose? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. He's, he lied to the Holy Spirit. And he drops dead right there in the middle of everyone. Now, in case you don't know the story, his, right, they, they remove the dead body. And then his wife comes in later. And they, he, Peter asks the same question. And what happens to her? She drops dead as well. Now, the Spirit was moving all kinds of Christians at this point to sell their property and make a communal cup of it. We're going to put all of our, all of our money together and we're going to support one another. The Spirit's leading all kinds of people to do it. Well, they, they don't feel compelled to do it themselves, Ananias and his wife, but everybody else is doing it. And so we ought to do it too. But our heart's not really in it. And so what we're going to do is we're going to resist the leading of the Holy Spirit for the whole community. And we're going to do our own thing, which is sell it, but hold back some of the money. We're going to try to look like we're part of the whole community, but we're really going to just be serving ourselves. And, and, and now, what was going on before or after this with this particular couple, I don't know. But at this point, they, they're trying to make it look like they're following the Holy Spirit and they're lying. And, and, and they're lying to God. They think that God can't see them. He, he, they think that the apostles aren't going to find out. So God takes blasphemy. God takes blasphemy against the Holy Spirit very seriously. So this is a loaded gun here between the scribes and Jesus. Right? This is not just a theological debate. At any moment here, somebody might just drop dead. It could be Jesus. <laughs> it could be the scribes. They're both accusing each other of quite horrible things. And so let that, that needs to be the warning. Right? We have to understand how seriously God himself takes it. This is the danger to which the scribes have exposed themselves. Right? And all of this, it's, like a, it's a power struggle. Is Jesus going to just suddenly drop dead? No. But have the scribes now gone from just confusion to accusation to now they're on a razor's edge? They're on a razor's edge. The expulsion of demons is a sign of the intrusion of the kingdom of God. Jesus is casting demons out. He's casting death and leprosy and sickness and illness out. He's casting it out. What is that a signal of? That Satan is fighting himself? No, not at all. By assigning the action of God to a demonic origin, the scribes betray a perversion of spirit which, in defiance of the truth, chooses to call light darkness. They're calling goodness evil. They're looking at what Jesus is doing and they're saying that is of the devil. That is wickedness. That deserves hell. That deserves eternal punishment. 
the very things that God is doing to save humanity. Now, and here is where another important point comes in. Is this just some Joe Schmo in the synagogue? Some ignorant, common Christian like us, just sitting in the back row saying this? No. These are scribes. Right? These are like triple PhDs from the University of Jerusalem right? who have probably memorized large portions of the Bible who are in charge of keeping track of everyone doing the law or not doing the law. It, right? on, this, on, on paper, nobody is more righteous than the scribes. Later on, Jesus says, Be, make sure everybody that you're as righteous as the scribes. Because in one sense, right, on the externals, they've nailed every bit of it. And they are the ones who can recognize the living God. So this isn't another... I, I, I have poor, sweet housewives who read their Bible every day, who, who know some decent amount of theology, but they come and they're worried that they're, like, they're somehow in their daily lives committing the unforgivable sin. And you're like, what, what are you... Right? You're not somebody who's going to do that. Because in the context even of, the, of what is going on here, these are the people who ought to know the most. Right? This is a danger that people who, the more you know, the more is required of you. The more you know, the more is expected of you. Now, that should humble us all a little bit. It should relieve us a little bit because we're like, well, I don't hardly know anything. So I'm pretty safe from committing the unforgivable sin. I mean, there was a moment this week where I was like, once I realized what I'm saying now, I was like, okay, sweet, good. I'm never going to quite probably know enough to commit this sin, thank goodness, but I'm still a little afraid, and I'm afraid, so I didn't do it, so I'm good. Right? That's, that's how it works. <laughs> Jesus wants to warn these men. Okay, now we're going to get into another part of this. This is specific to who these They're in danger because of how much they know and how much authority they have. And he wants them specifically to turn back and go the other way. John the baptizer had prophesied that Jesus would baptize with the Holy Spirit. He said it publicly. At John's baptism of Jesus, the Holy Spirit came upon Jesus publicly. Jesus received his Pentecost at the River Jordan so that he would be able to accomplish his mission and arrange a Pentecost in Jerusalem for his followers. Therefore, there are two stages set forth for us in Mark's gospel, the ministry of the Son and the ministry of the Spirit. Right? At the end of the gospel, he talks about the Spirit coming, and in Acts, the Spirit comes, and you've got Jesus' witness, and then you, the, begins the witness of the Holy Spirit. There's two stages to the gospel in this sense. The gospel is established in Jesus, and it goes forth by the Spirit. This is important to remember. What the scribes from Jerusalem reject in Galilee will be offered again in Jerusalem by disciples from Galilee. Think about that. They've gone off to Galilee, and they're rejecting all this. Later on, while they're going to be in Jerusalem, these same scribes are going to hear these Galileans preach. And this is what it says in Acts 3, 17 through 20. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. Well, I, what, what do you send the Christ? Jesus came, and then we killed him. What are you talking about? Well, there's a, right, this is where you get into the ministry of the Holy Spirit. How are we all here united to the living God right now? 
through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So this is why he says, you can say whatever you want about me, Jesus says, but you cannot blaspheme the Holy Spirit because there's two stages of it. How many of us, when we first heard the gospel, were like, uh, no, and we rejected Jesus outright? My wife was just listening to these verses this morning when we were getting ready. There's a point where Jesus and his followers go to this town, and the town rejects the, the witness of Jesus. So the, or the disciples are like, okay, well, let's, let's call down some hellfire on these guys here and mop up. Let's just destroy everything. And Jesus rebukes them because they don't understand the eschatological plan. They don't understand the big picture. He, Jesus is coming as one witness, and then the Spirit comes as a second witness. So think about that for a moment. You can reject Jesus. Most of us do all the time. But if you reject both the witness of Jesus and the witness of the Holy Spirit and you die and you go before God, what, what's, what, what do you got at that point? Nothing but eternal hellfire. That's the warning. It, right? This is the warning. Everybody, because God is gracious and kind, has a certain amount of time. And you've got two witnesses. The law of God in the Old, in the Old Testament... He, uh, Paul makes this point in, in Hebrews. Right? Somebody is put to death by the, by the evidence of two witnesses. Now, if you stand before God the Father in the final judgment, do you think he is not going to uphold the law? He's not going to suddenly be like, you know, now because I'm God, I'm going to set aside the law, which was supposed to teach you about me all along, and I'm just going to start executing people by my own witness. No, he's going to call two witnesses. <laughs> and the two witnesses are going to be Jesus and the Holy Spirit. And everyone at some point will be like, yeah, we rejected Jesus most of the time. And then the Holy Spirit will be like, whoa, 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 hold on. Hold on, Dad. I got him. Okay? Because here it was in this one day, and I came and I opened his eyes, and he saw Jesus, and he cried out to Jesus, and, and he turned back to the first witness. It's like the spirit is standing there on the edge of the abyss, turning people back towards Jesus. And, and I mean, once you ignore him and you go over the abyss, what hope is there for you? None. But what hope do you have until that moment? What hope do you have until that moment? Every sin will be forgiven man. Every one of them. Every one of them. As long as you're on that road and the abyss stands before you and you haven't yet gone over it, there's still hope. There's still hope. There's still time. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Do not reject the witness of the Holy Spirit. If you are sitting there and you're like, Lord, Lord, open your word to me and let me understand it. And, it, and there you are, you read it, and you, by the Spirit you come to understand what it means, and you're like, no, 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 no. I, I reject that witness. This is how people come at the end to say, Lord, Lord, to Jesus, and he says, I don't know you. Right? You have to accept both the witness of Jesus and the witness of his spirit. Because the spirit is the helper. He's the one that comes and, and convicts you of your sin, it says in John, teaches you everything that Jesus said. So you can't have Jesus the Savior without the Holy Spirit who teaches you that he is Lord of life. That he is guiding you every step of the way. You can't just have one without the other. Right? And we, we know you can't have spirits without Jesus. I would be very worried if you had spirits apart from Jesus. <laughs> right? You would be the people the scribes are talking about. Think about this for, 
for just a second. Think about what it means for you. Think about what it means for your neighbor. Think about what it means for your prodigal children. Think about what it means for your children sitting there now. Think about what it means for anyone that you know who doesn't know the Lord. Right? The, people thought Jesus, his family, he's mad. Look at him. He's not even taking the time to eat. He's not taking the time to sleep. And what did I say? He's zealous. He's zealous. He has a small amount of time. A small amount of time. And he wants to be about the work of the kingdom. Because after, right, once the, the timer goes off and we lie down in the ground and we've ignored both witnesses, what hope is there for us? But every sin, he says, will be forgiven man. Every sin. And then the Spirit comes and, and he testifies the fact that, yeah, what you did is sin. And then you feel that conviction. And he turns you back. And your eyes turn. Well, what am I going to do now? Right? Remember when you first believed. And you thought, and you came to understand, this is sin what I am doing. What am I going to do now? And as soon as you cried out in that regard, what happened? What happened? Christ filled your heart. His love filled your heart. His will filled your heart. And all you wanted to do was to do what he does. All you wanted to do was to do what pleased him. Now, okay. So then you go wandering off along the trail somewhere and you get a little distracted by all the shiny stuff and the things of this world. And then what happens? Right? You start to, in a sense, reject the witness of Jesus. Do you act all the time like he's the Lord? No. Do you act all the time like he's the Savior? Well, no way. Do you act all the time like you need his saving? No. But then the second witness comes and you either respond to it or you don't. You turn back or you don't. Hebrews 10.39, after all this about the two witnesses, right? I've, I've taken everything that I've said here from Hebrews. At the end of this whole long section, he says this, but we are not of those who shrink back or destroyed but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Those who shrink back in horror and say, oh, the atonement, that's just cosmic child abuse. That's disgusting. Oh, look at this, what it says in the Old Testament about homosexuality. And people shrink back in unbelief. But when you sit down with the word of the living word, which is Jesus, and the spirit testifies to you that even though I don't understand this, even though that this is very difficult for me to read, it is in fact the truth. You at that point have not rejected the witnesses. You've accepted both of them. And, and at that point, what's your, what, what is the battle cry at that point? Every sin will be forgiven us. All of them. Adulterers? Yes. Murderers? Yes. Those who fall away? Yes. Those who are prodigals for a time? Yes. That's what a prodigal is. It's someone who leaves and comes back. Right? I love that we call them uh, prodigals and not apostates. I love that. I, it, it testifies in a way, it's hard to say, you hear the hope and faith even when people are talking about it. Because until the very end, what is our hope? What is our faith in? It's Jesus and his spirit. It's Jesus and his spirit. Think about those poor scribes. Think about the poor unbelievers that you know. If you think the doctor, the only doctor who's going to save your life, is actually <laughs> right, a sadistic murderer, are you ever going to allow him to commit the operation? 
And imagine sitting in the doctor's office and you're like, I think, I think this guy's a murderer, actually. I think he wants to poke me with stuff so he can kill me. Would you ever accept his help? You go to the apothecary, they call him pharmacist now, and you're like, okay, I need these drugs to save my life. And they're like, well, cool, we got tons of them. Let me go grab some. And you're like, uh, I don't know, you look sketchy. Right? Is that poison back there? You would take the pills and would you take them? No. Right? These scribes are rejecting the very thing that they need to live forever. But it's by the grace of, right? He wants everyone to believe. He, spend, he sends his spirit out through the community of God to and fro upon the earth through his word. He wants people to turn back to Jesus. Be like, no, that guy's not a murderer. That's not wickedness. That's life. As hard as it is to understand, understanding it isn't the point. Believing that he actually is the great physician, the saver of souls, that is the point. I don't know how. I don't know when. I don't understand how the circumstances are going to work out. But the only hope to have every sin forgiven is Jesus Christ. And thank God it's the Spirit who helps us to understand that. I'm going to read uh, in closing here some verses that are very personal to me. <laughs> Paul is somebody that I feel a great affinity for. Not quite as much as Peter, but, but, but Paul and I understand one another. And so you're thinking of, of the unbelievers that you know, the people who are straying, the people who have wandered, the people who are rejecting the witness. Listen to this. This is Paul. Listen to what he says in 1 Timothy, in the first chapter, verses 12 through 17. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer. Wait, whoa. Wait, I thought blasphemy was the unforgivable sin. I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. The only point of doctrine I'd ever like to dispute with him is that one. Because I hadn't been born yet is the only reason I think he said that. I digress. He goes on to say, but I have received mercy for this reason. That in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. himself, he uses he, he's thanking God, saying that he knows the only reason he received mercy is so that anyone and everyone at any moment would have hope. Right? If they're going to save him, if it's possible to save that guy, it's possible to save anybody. And it's true. Every sin, every sin will be forgiven men. All of them. There's still time. Right? There's still time for your children. There's still time for your spouses. There's still try time for your cousins and aunts and uncles and parents. There is still time for anyone who is still has breath. Now, after that, 
right? I'm with C.S. Lewis. What did they really want? C.S. Lewis makes this point. God is so gracious that even those who reject him, he will give them exactly what they want. Eternity without him. And at that point, that's a whole other sermon about things far too deep for me to understand that we would look at that and say hallelujah and amen, but we will. But for, for today, this, this, this part that ties people in knots about the unforgiveness, think of the hope. Every sin will be forgiven man. Every one of them. As long, as long as there is time to hear these two witnesses. And so as a church, as a community, what then is our calling? Why did you receive mercy? Simply because you're amazing and you can sit around and be like, yeah, dude, I'm pretty sweet. You received mercy, right? I think of this all the time. My brother should realize that he, everyone could be saved if I was saved. Because he says, why you? He's asked me that, and I'm like, hey, dude, that is the conversation I'd like to have, right? Right? Why me? I'm with you all the way. And if, and if me, anybody. I love it. My dad, this is my dad all the time. We talk, start talking about family. You know, it's the holidays. And the list, perhaps, of those who I have a little bit of doubt about gets longer. <laughs> and my aged, believing father is like, listen, listen, God saved you, man. <laughs> Do you remember you? <laughs> and, and this is what Paul is saying. There is hope. They are prodigals. They are your neighbors who are unbelieving, right? I, people who, who knew me before I was a Christian, right? I remember this one guy's like, oh, you're just not a believer yet. This old neighbor of mine. I was like, what does that mean? Right Now, did he have a word from the Lord? No. His hope was the same hope of the living God, that God would save anybody. God will save anyone and everyone. All sins will be forgiven. That is our hope. That is our Christmas present. Right? The Lord did not stay in, in the highest heavens, but he came to walk amongst us to give us life, to give us not only himself as witness, but his spirit as witness. And we have so little time. And so, so let us, with zeal, be like our Lord and be about his business. Rejoicing, sinking. Right? If we have received mercy, anyone can receive mercy. And amen. Father, we thank you so much for the testimony of your word. We thank you for your uh, never-ending love and endurance and patience. Lord God, we know that you did not choose us because we were phenomenal and fantastic that we are the greatest thing to ever happen to this world. We know that you chose us, that you have redeemed us because you are a gracious and loving God and that your ways are beyond finding out. And even now, as we are filled with hope and faith, your ways are still beyond finding out. And we pray, Lord God, that these verses would not cause us to look inward and to fear unnaturally and unduly, but that they would fill us with hope. Your two witnesses are strong and alive and everywhere. And I pray, Lord God, that we all would point to them and point to them and point to them and praise them and lift them up and pray heartily that everyone that we know would come to know both witnesses and would know the joy, the joy of our salvation. And amen.